0: Ready? I know um, you university students, you may not be ready for Christmas. You're probably just trying to get through this next week. How many of you guys, are anyone done? <laughs> You're all looking at me like, no. <laughs> anyone not done? You got finals this week? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Lord, we pray for these guys who have finals. I help them to focus today on the word that you have for them, and then I give them grace to uh, study hard uh, this, the rest of this week. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> it's getting closer. Almost done. Hang in there. Uh, Last week, we finished a long series we had been doing since, I think, March-ish, going through the book of Genesis, looking at the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the lives of Judah and Joseph and some of the sons of Jacob as well. And um, we ended last week with the final chapter in in Genesis, and I was actually surprised. I didn't realize, I, I remarked on it last week, was how surprised I was that the book of Genesis ends with what could be considered a Christmas text. Uh, here, for example, it is in uh, Genesis 50, verses 24 to 26, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land of the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you'll carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. And obviously this text sets us up. Like this last words in the book of Genesis sets us up for the next book of the Bible which is which is Exodus. But I said last week I think it points to something more. Particularly in the context of the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the first 5 books of the Bible as a whole and in the context of the whole story of the Bible. And so I mentioned this week last week that this text surprisingly points us to Christmas. For the reality of Christmas is that God literally has and the person of Jesus Christ visited his people. God has visited his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was given the title at his birth, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's called Jesus, for that name means God will save us, his people, from their sins. And I was intrigued as I noticed that Genesis ended with this kind of looking forward to God's visitation of his people. Because I also knew, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, But that the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the last book of these five books of Moses, also ends in the last verses with pointing forward to a promised person who is to come. And so I thought, um, I was wondering, like, does that happen in every book of Moses? Like, at the end of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, do they all end with, like, this little cryptic statement about this person who's going to come? And the answer was no, but in kind of doing some of that study this week, I found something pretty cool, and I thought maybe I'll I'll share that with you guys today, Um, especially as some of you guys have asked me, oh, Pastor Dan, what are you going to be preaching on now that Genesis is done, and some of you guys have been like, oh, are you going to just like go to Exodus and just keep on pushing through and we'll just kind of like be in the Old Testament for the next like, I don't know, like seven years or so. Uh, It's not actually my plan to do that. I'm actually really excited. I've been studying all month the book of Ecclesiastes and so that's what we're going to be doing uh, come January. Some of you guys are excited for, I'm excited for Ecclesiastes Um, and I'll explain why I'm doing that when I get into that. But I thought it would be a good idea today, uh, maybe during this Christmas season, to maybe follow the storyline a little bit more, uh, particularly as the Old Testament points us to Christmas and the coming of our Lord as God himself in Jesus has come to visit us. It's it's appropriate to to read the Old Testament in this way. Jesus himself, after he was raised from the dead, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, and Jesus actually explained to his disciples how the entire what we call the Old Testament, what the Jewish people call the Tanakh, how the Tanakh or our Old Testament points to him. And in fact, the message of the Tanakh, the message of the Old Testament is all about him. Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he says, they said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are written about Jesus. And so this morning, uh, what I hope to do is quickly walk through the first part of that trilogy, to walk through the law of Moses, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are called the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're called the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Um, Sometimes they're just referred to as the Torah. And um, I What's cool is as we look through these, each one of these first five books of the Bible, foundational to the rest of the scripture, each of them give us a piece of the puzzle of this person who's going to come, and as Christians, as we believe, this person who has, in fact, come. And each book contributes a key theme, like a piece of the puzzle that together provides for us an astounding picture of who Jesus is, why he came to dwell among us, and then even about the nature of his ministry. And and we're going to move pretty quickly uh, today as we go through these first five books, so hopefully we'll, we'll get it done. But, um, but I hope that uh, we, I can just give a little bit of overview for you, and then, and then you can dig deeper into the Word of God and study these books on your own. So Heavenly Father, I, I pray that as you open up your Word in front of us, God, that you might teach us to see your Son, uh, that you might teach us to sh- show us Christ, show us Jesus, In these books in your name we pray amen one one thing a little bit of an aside when i just prayed there show us christ in these books what i'm not praying and what i'm not attempting to do today is to sort of mystically import jesus into these books i'm not trying to be like aha see that shows us christ because and i'm not trying to make some sort of mystical connections to those things what I'm, what I'm actually want to show to you is like the Moses himself in writing these books had as his intent that we might look for and long for Jesus. That was his intent. I want to show you that in these books. So so we'll, we'll, we'll hit Genesis. I'm going to try to hit Genesis pretty quick because we've just been nine months in the book of Genesis. But, um, but some of you guys are, are visiting or you're back here today, so I'll go through this quickly. But In Genesis, we see a main theme, if not the key theme of the book of Genesis, is that we are waiting for this deliverer. We're waiting for deliverance through the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Abraham. So the offspring of the woman, Eve, and then narrowed down to an offspring of this this man, Abraham. And that's what we've been looking at over these last nine months in the book of Genesis. The promise is first given. 3.15, 3.15, as soon as we, humanity, turned away from God, rebelled against God, went our own way against God, said, God, we do not want you as our king. We do not want to remain under your hand. As he had told us that in the day of our rebellion, in the day that we had eaten of the, of the forbidden tree, we would surely die. Yet instead of crushing us for our sins, instead of, instead of, instead of actually working out and immediately mediating his judgment upon us when we had turned away from him. He, in fact, instead of judgment, gives a promise. We, we, in fact, did spiritually die, disconnecting ourselves from our Savior, our life God. But what he does is he does not send his judgment immediately, but he in fact sends a promise, and this promise is pronounced upon the serpent, the one who tempted us into sin, but there is a promise, a kernel of a promise here, that sets the agenda for the rest of the entire book of Genesis. The Lord God says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity, and here it is, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. And then he gets particular. He, meaning one of the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. Another translation, you will crush your head as you bruise his heel. So he'll be wounded in some way, but he is going to come and crush the serpent. That's what we're looking for. And we, we know that this is the way Moses intends for us to read this because of what happens next in the story. What happens after Mo- Adam, Adam hears this promise pronounced upon the serpent is he turns to his wife, who's unnamed up until this point, and he gives her a name. And I always make the kind of joke, if your wife had given you the temptation that led the entire humanity into sin and death, you might give her a name, but it may not be a positive one. But Adam, uh, even though he had shifted blame on her before, he now gives her a name, and the name he gives her is really instructive for how he understood this promise. The name he gives her is Eve, and then it says, when Moses says, because or for, she will be the mother of the living, So although they've heard this curse from God that on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die, because of this promise that the seed of the woman will come and crush Satan's head, Adam turns to his wife and he calls her Eve because from her life will come. She will be the mother of the living. And then they have these sons, and in the first generation of the sons, you can see in the names that they give them, that they are hoping that one of their sons is going to be this promised son. But what happens in the first generation is, uh, what happens in the first generation is uh, Cain, the wicked son, actually kills Abel, the righteous son. And so the first candidate, the first kind of candidate for who is this son who's going to come and crush Satan, is actually killed by his brother, enmity between the two of them. And so they have another son, and they call him Seth. And I love this uh, phrase at the end of verse 26 of chapter four. It like dawns on the people that maybe this is going to take some time, that maybe it's not going to be the first son of Adam and Eve who comes and crushes Satan. And so it dawns on them, and it says at this point, they begin calling upon the name of the Lord. They begin calling out to God to send his Savior, his Deliverer. And that's what the book of Genesis goes on to do, and that's what we've been studying the last nine months, is how is how this Genesis moves along by introducing to us a candidate for who this savior-deliverer, Satan-crusher is going to be. And a candidate is brought up, and then the candidate is looked at, and then the candidate is set aside. It's not going to be him. Okay? So the first major candidate we get is this guy named Abraham. And Abraham shows up. In Genesis chapter 12, he's an idol worshiper living in Mesopotamia. He's married. The crazy part about Abraham, if you remember back to those sermons nine months ago, the crazy part about Abraham is he's married to a barren woman. She can't have a child that's going to be the one who blesses the world. But God chooses him in spite of himself, in spite of his idolatry, in spite of his circumstance. God, in his grace, chooses Abraham and says, go from the land you're living in and go into the land that I will show you. I will make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will multiply you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that promise given to Abraham is is actually um, unfolded through as Abraham walks by faith. So that in chapter 22... It says it very clearly in this way I, God says to Abraham, I will bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy. So suddenly there's a singularity. There's one chosen offspring of Abraham that we're waiting for. And in that offspring, verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so again, we are driven forward in the book of Genesis, looking for this son, looking for this offspring of this woman, looking for this son of Abraham who's going to come and crush Satan and bless the nations. And so Abraham has son Isaac. He he's the son of the promise, but he's not the ultimate promise. And Isaac has two sons, and the second one is Jacob. He is the son of the promise, but he's not the ultimate son of the promise. And Jacob has twelve sons, and 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 we're get driven forward so that. Genesis, we are actually, this is what makes Joseph's words so significant, because we've been waiting all of Genesis, we've been reading all of Genesis going, who is the son, who is the son, who is the son that's going to come and deliver, and then at the end of Genesis, the last couple verses, Joseph says, and by the way, God will visit you. And it's like, wait a minute, I thought we were looking for this son of the woman who's going to come, this child of Abraham who's going to come. Now you're telling me that God himself will visit. It kind of throws us off. It's, It's pretty cool, though. So let's move forward a little bit. That's where we were last week. So let's move forward to the book of Exodus. So what happens in Exodus? In Exodus, Joseph's words come literally true. In Exodus, Joseph's words come. In Exodus, God himself delivers his people through a great prophet, through Moses. God himself delivers his people through Moses, and and God himself is going to become, in the book of Exodus, their king. So this is God basically taking their deliverance upon himself. Okay? So what happens in the book of Moses is the first couple chapters, God remembers his people. Uh, God 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 chooses this guy, Moses, who he rescues uh, in his providence at birth, and Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, and then uh, has to flee into the wilderness, but God reveals himself to Moses and says, you are going to be the one. Go back to the Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. God, I myself am going to deliver my people, and and Moses is like, well, who should I tell them sent me, And and God reveals his name and his character to Moses, I am that I am, Tell him the I Am sent you. And so Moses goes back in chapter 5, goes back to Pharaoh. Let my people go, right? Prince of Egypt stuff. You guys have all seen the movie. Um, In that, God visits Pharaoh. Pharaoh says no. And so God visits a series of plagues upon Egypt. And the final plague is the death of all the firstborn sons, what we call the Passover. And we call it the Passover because God instructs his people who he himself is going to deliver to take a a a lamb, an um unblemished lamb, and to kill it in place of the son. In place of their firstborn son, the lamb is going to die. And then they're going to take the blood, they're going to eat the the meal, and they're going to take the blood, and they're going to wipe the blood over the doorpost of their home. It's really interesting... um, I just was sharing with actually one of my daughter's high school classes about Egyptian art and culture. And um, I, I had gone and visited a museum in Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. They have an Egyptian uh, artifacts in their, in their museum. And one of the coolest things about that museum is they have this door frame of one of the Egyptian viziers. It's a door frame from his house. If they had one of your door frames from your house, it probably would just have like your height when you were a little kid, right? That's what parents do. They mark their their kids' heights on door frames. Uh, In Egypt, you did something else. You would have these door frames, and you would actually inscribe on the door frames the names of your gods and and kind of spells that the names of your gods would bless and give prosperity to the people dwelling in that house. And you would have those hieroglyphics, right, written on the door frames of your house and the names of their God. And so what, what God is actually saying in the Passover is I myself will deliver you And you will be spared by the blood of a substitute covering all of your idolatry. Right? So so covering up your idolatry. Renounce your idolatry and through the sacrifice of that substitute in your place you will be saved and delivered. That's that's what's going on in the Passover. It's God himself. this This is a spiritual battle between God and the false gods of Egypt. And God wins and delivers his people. So in ver- chapters 13 to 18, you have the escape from Egypt. In, uh, sorry, in uh, 19 to 34, God himself enshrines himself as king of Israel. He gives them the law, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he actually, chapters 35 to 39, he actually tells Moses, I'm going to live with you as your king. Make me A house, in a sense. Make me a tabernacle, because we're going to be wandering together. We're going to be moving together. And I want you, I want to, you guys are all like living in tents in the wilderness. I want to live with you as your king. I'm your deliverer. And so God does. He tells them exactly how to construct this tabernacle. And then a theme in those chapters is that Moses did exactly as the Lord instructed him. Here's the problem. And the problem shows itself up in the last verses of Exodus. Here's the problem. In Exodus, God wants to live with his people as their king. And the last chapter of Exodus, he moves into his house. Right? He moves into the tabernacle. It says in 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then you have the problem here. Moses, the great prophet, the one who spoke face to face with God, now that God's moved into his house, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. It's called the tent of meeting. And the problem is nobody can meet with God there. It's a funny name. The tent of meeting, Moses can't approach. God has moved in and is living among his people and no one, not even Moses, can, can talk with him or meet with him or, or see him or, or be in his presence. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. The book of Exodus ends with how do you live as God is your neighbor? One way you live is you can't approach him. If you approach him, he is so holy and we are not. If you approach God, you will die. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. And it's interesting, that is what brings us to Leviticus. Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus has two messages. One is this, be holy for I am holy. So holiness is the theme of the book. But that is what connects it to the problem of Exodus. The problem of Leviticus is God is so holy, he is inapproachable. But the problem of Exodus is that God has delivered us and wants to live with us. So how do we live with a God who is inapproachable? Well, that brings us to Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is all about this, that we can only approach God through a mediator, through a priest standing on our behalf, Who brings to God an appropriate sacrifice that cleanses both the priest and ourselves. So so this idea of that Passover lamb where you take the blood and apply it over the household of the person who God is delivering, that theme applies itself again and again and again and again and again again through the book of Leviticus. Right? So we we need not just one substitutionary sacrifice, we we need countless of them. We need every day priests standing and ministering in at the tabernacle in front of God's presence so that the people even have a chance of communing with their God. To to deal with their sin, to deal with their unholiness. We need someone to stand in our place with the right sacrifice. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Only through the tireless work of a representational priesthood can God dwell with man. And the system seems to work. At the beginning of Leviticus, this is how Leviticus starts. Right? Genesis, uh, Exodus ended that Moses couldn't approach. So in Leviticus chapter 1, this is how it starts. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So because Moses can't approach God in the tent of meeting, God's got to be like, Moses! Come here! But don't come too near! Right? Now what's interesting is how the book of Numbers starts. Once this sacrificial system is set up in the book of Leviticus. Look at how the book of Numbers starts. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. This is why I was like blown away by how these books start and end. It's like because of the priesthood, because of the sacrifice, now people and Moses can approach and come into the presence of God. And Moses being their prophet who speaks face to face. Okay. So that's what Leviticus does, bringing us to Numbers. Numbers is not a good book. Sorry. Numbers is all about our failure, our sin, our rebellion again. And and it just seems that the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, the theme of the book of Numbers is we need a king to lead us and protect us from our own waywardness. In the book of Numbers, we're always rebelling. Here, here's the overbow of the book of Numbers. There's a census of the people. That's why it's called Numbers, because it starts out with a bunch of numbers, okay? So if you, if you got to there in your Bible reading plan and gave up, I don't blame you, because that's where I always gave up in my Bible reading plan. I'd get to Numbers, and I'd get to three chapters of Numbers, and I'd be like, what? Why is this in the Bible? But it moves on into a section in Numbers where it talks about how the Israelites are preparing to enter the land. So they go, and they're getting ready to enter the land. It's like, it's like God delivered us from Exodus. Let's go. He's our king. He's going to lead us. Let's go. He's leading us through Moses, and Moses is telling us what he wants us. And we, we go, and we prepare to enter the land, and we, we send the spies ahead to go check out, is it a good land? All the spies come back, and they say, yeah, yeah, it's a really, really good land. And they're like, should we go? Let's go. And they're like, no. 10 of the spies outnumber 2 and they say take us back to Egypt. I don't know how this I don't know how this divine kingship of our Lord turned into some sort of wicked democracy, but that's what happens. The 10 outvote the 2, the people side with the 10 and they say take us back to Egypt, and then God gets angry. And he sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And every all of that generation dies. So 40 years later, they're about to prepare to enter the land. They actually, it's amazing if you read the book of Numbers at this point. They actually walk in the same places, like one by one to the same places. It's like deja vu. And they're walking and they're approaching the land. And as they approach the land, they're, they're camped, ready to go into the land. And again, there ends up being failure, rebellion, and judgment. And again, at the end, there's this, uh, uh, a census of the people. But something happens in chapter 23 and 24 that's really important in the book of Numbers. Chapter 23 and 24, you have this guy named Balak. Sorry, Balak is the king, and and he hires this prophet, this Canaanite prophet named Balaam. And he hires this prophet to curse Israel as they're encamped, ready to come into Canaan. So he's like, Balaam, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to give you my own money for you to stand up on this mountain and rain curses upon these people that are coming. And so Balaam... Gets up to this mountain, and there's a funny story about how he gets on to the mountain, but that's not the focus. He, he gets up to the mountain, and he's about to curse the people of Israel. And Balak, the king of hired is standing right there going, yeah, this is going to be good. And Balaam opens his mouth, and instead of cursing the people of Israel, God fills his mouth with blessings upon the people of Israel. These same people who have lived in the book of Numbers in complete failure and rebellion, Balaam blesses them. And so Balak gets angry and says, Do it again. Do it right this time. And Balaam does this again. And he blesses them again. And Balak gets angry and says, Do it right this time. I'm paying you good money. And Balaam does it again and he blesses them again. And Balak says, Three times I have hired you to curse these people. And all you do is bless them. And Balaam says, Look, I can do nothing. I'm opening up my mouth and I can do nothing but say what the Lord is commanding me to say. And then. He says to Balak, he says, let me tell you what God has in store for this people. And this is what he says. This is climactic in the book of Numbers. It says this 24, 15. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and who knows knowledge of the Most High and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Look what he says here. This is awesome. I just see Balaam. I see him. I see him. But not now. I, I behold him. But, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Seth. Edom will be dispossessed. Sarah also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. What's amazing is Balaam sees Jesus. I, I, his words almost take my breath away. I, I see him. Not now I'm talking. I'm not talking about now. I see him, but he's not near. He's he's coming in the future. He's coming at some point. He sees Jesus, and he sees this king who's going to reign and exercise dominion over the nations and and trample over his enemies and establish righteousness. And he he sees him and Balak's terrified. What happens in the book of Numbers? I'll go back. What happens in the book of Numbers? Well, this happens in the book of Numbers. Balaam's still hired by Balak to, to curse these people. And Balaam basically says, listen, you're not going to be able to curse them. What he does is they send women, the Moabite women down there and they seduce them. Because while Israelite, Israel cannot be cursed, God's plan cannot be, cannot be removed from the nation and the sending of Messiah, they can be so easily seduced, and they do, and they fail to enter the land again. And so God them again, and that's what leads to the census of the people. So that brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the theme of Deuteronomy is we need a prophet to teach us God's ways and change our hearts. So here's, here's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy. We think of Deuteronomy as the law. Deuteronomy is actually called the second giving of the law. And we think of it as a book of law. But what Deuteronomy actually is, is it's a series of sermons around the giving of the law. And so here's, here's a of Deuteronomy. Here's the law, you're not going to keep it. That's basically the the book of Deuteronomy, right? So chapter 1 to 4 is basically Moses telling them everything that's happened in the book of Numbers. And basically Moses is like, every time God has delivered you and led you, you guys people said, yeah, we'll follow him. And then you did the exact opposite thing. And he said, here's how you have failed again and again and again, your God who has delivered you. And then in chapters 5 to 26, he goes, Here's the law. And in the midst, in sprinkling in that entire giving of the law, he he keeps on telling them, Yeah, you guys are not, it's not because you are righteous that God is giving you the law, you're not going to be able to do it. At the end of giving them the law that they won't keep, he gives them a series of blessings and cursings. And here's how it goes. Here's all the curses that are upon all the people that will not keep the law. Here's all the blessings that will come to you if you do keep the law. And guess what? You're going to say today, I know you're going to say, we will do it. And he says, will you do it? And of course everybody says, we will do it. And then Moses is like, yeah, you're not going to do it. You are going to turn away. You are going to turn away into adultery. And, and then chapter 32 to 33, Moses sings a song over them. it's kind of a song that says you're not going to keep any of this law but when god judges you and scatters you he will restore you he will restore you he even says in, in chapter 34 he says i think i have this up here he talks about a second exodus to come and a change of heart that is going to come he said if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven From there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And it says that then he will bring you back into this land. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. There's a promise at the end of the book of Deuteronomy is this, that that, that you will fail to keep this law but there will be a second exodus. There will be a greater exodus where the Lord will will actually change your heart and restore you as a people. And the, the, book of, the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, the five books of the Bible, five books of um, Moses in the Bible, end with this talk of this prophet who is to come. So looking forward to a day when God dwells with his people in spiritual intimacy, you will love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In a second and greater exodus, Deuteronomy ends with this statement And this statement had to have been written by someone after Moses dies. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, but this last chapter is after Moses has died. So this is somebody coming in afterward and writing what has happened to Israel since, in a sense. Like a conclusion to Deuteronomy. Some people think this might have been Ezra writing in the Second Temple period, um, collecting the books of the law and putting them together into one scroll. I don't know if that's true or not. But it's interesting what, what this person says. He says... After Moses dies, he says, and this is how the book closes, verse thirty-four, ten: There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh, to all his servants, all his land, for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's interesting, if this was written by Ezra, that would be super significant because there are many prophets that the Lord had said, but none like Moses who spoke to God face to face. And why is this significant? It's because Moses himself, halfway through the book, prophesies about this prophet who will come. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, he will speak in my name. I myself will require from him." So that's how, the books of, that's how the first five books of the Bible end with looking forward to this second greater exodus that will come and the second greater prophetic Moses who will come to lead us into this second exodus. And that's how we're left with at the book. So, so summarizing and just concluding conclu- and summarizing here, this is what we get. We get in Genesis, we're looking for this... Of Eve and Abraham was going to come and crush Satan's head and bless, bring blessing to the na- to to uh, to the nations. In Exodus, we're looking for a deliverer. God Himself delivers His people in Exodus, but by the time we get to Deuteronomy, we are told we are, we need a greater Exodus, a greater deliverer a, a greater prophet in deuteronomy we realize we can't approach god because of his holiness so we need to be represented by a priest who brings an appropriate and proper sacrifice and we need a king who will guide us and rule over the nations in righteousness that is who we are looking for in these in the law of moses and of course this is who we proclaim in jesus christ Jesus is the offspring Genesis promised. He's the deliverer Exodus for Saul. He's the priest Leviticus prescribes. He's the king Numbers needs. And he's the prophet Deuteronomy awaits. I just want to close today by just reading some of these amazing verses from the New Testament here. He's the offspring Genesis promised. In fact, can we read some of these verses together? Let's read these together. Galatians 4.3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The seed of the woman has come. Let's read again. Galatians 3.16. Read with me. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, Jesus Christ. He's the son of Abraham who's come to bring blessing to the nations. Jesus is the deliverer, of Exodus foresaw. Let's read together Galatians 1.3 Grace to you, and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the deliverer. He is the Passover lamb who's given himself that we might be delivered. Jesus is the priest Leviticus prescribed. Hebrews 9.11. Jesus is the king's numbers needed. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Just, I want to just point something out before we read the second part of this verse. Remember what Balaam prophesied? A star will come from Jacob. There are scholars who think that these wise men were led to Jesus because they had seen the star, because they had known of Balaam's prophecy. Listen to what they say. We saw his star. The star will come from Jacob. And look at what they said, the second part of the prophecy, and the scepter will not depart from Israel. Look what he says next. So assembling, let's read together, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is the king Numbers needs. And finally, he's the prophet Deuteronomy awaits. John 1.14, let's read it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wait, stop here. This is pretty awesome. The word in Greek is he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle. Okay, let's read it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. I love it. Moses is a prophet who sees God face to face. Jesus is the word of God himself, the only begotten who has come to reveal grace and truth to us. He is the prophet to lead us into this greater exodus. Let would read one more. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We often ask, a, a, a common phrase at our household at this time of year, and probably in your houses, is, what do you want for Christmas? You ask your mom, you ask your brother, what do you want for Christmas? I think the theme of these first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, not, not asking us what do we want for Christmas, but the law tells us what we need for Christmas, We need Christmas because we need a deliverer. We have turned away from God in our sins. We have gone our own way and rebelled against Him. We are deserving and we earn God's wrath and justice poured out upon us for our sin. And we need Christmas because we need a deliverer. We need Christmas because we need a priest. Because God's holiness and our unrighteousness, we cannot come into God's presence and we cannot approach this holy God. But we need a priest who who brings an appropriate sacrifice, doing away with sin in himself. We need Christmas because we need a king. We are wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, without him. And we need a king to come and shepherd us. We need Christmas because we need a prophet. We need a new heart. We need the word of God. That is Christmas in the law of Moses. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you because you are the God who knows the end from the beginning. That before you even gave us your word, you had a plan to reconcile all things in Christ. And to send your Son, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Prophet, the Priest, the King. And Lord, we pray that as Christmas, as we reflect on this Christmas season, that we um, we don't just think about Christmas as being what we want, God, but you are you're showing us, revealing to us what we need and what you have provided in Christ. And I would pray for any who are here today, God, who do not know you, that they would, through this Christmas season, be... Uh, provoked, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you provoke them to gaze into your word and to see, as even Balaam saw, I see him. I see Christ now. Would you show them their need for Christ and would you show them the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you give them faith to come before you, bowing their heart and knee to you, acknowledging their sin before you, and confessing to you, crying out to you, and calling upon you because you have promised that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and adopted into your family as sons and daughters. We thank you for this day and we thank you for this season. In your name we pray. Amen. I think we got some Christmas songs and some other worship songs that we're going to be singing. Would you sing out with us today and, uh, and call upon the name of the Lord? Oh, sorry. During this time, also, I'm going to be uh, we're going to be sending around the elements for the Lord's Supper—a cracker and a cup. This is a special meal. We we celebrate at the end of each worship service together, um, but it is a meal for Christians, for those who have come, acknowledging their need of Jesus Christ, confessing Him, and publicly professing Him in baptism before others. So if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, I, I would appeal to you today. Even come and speak to me after service. If you haven't yet been baptized, I'd love to talk to you about that and how we can prepare you for that. And, uh, and otherwise, just help us by passing the trays along and uh, we'll celebrate together at the end of the, the, the worship time.